Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. I'm today with Richard Perkins from Richdale Farm in Sweden. We discuss the tree systems he has planted on his farm, and more specifically, the opportunity of integrating trees to market gardening and pastured poultry, two of his key enterprises. Richard is also an educator with the mission of helping farmers to build and manage successful small-scale farms. He is therefore the ideal guest to have a conversation on how to make small-scale agroforestry systems viable and their place in the farm strategy. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're really, really happy uh, to have you. Could you just start by giving a, a bit of context on um, your project, how you work on farming and, and how you got to, uh, to farming? Sure. Uh, I went to agriculture school when I was 18. I actually went into agriculture studying organic horticulture crop production and spent my late teens, early 20s working on organic vegetable productions in the UK, where I'm from. And I got a bit disheartened with that because I worked backbreaking jobs, very low pay, built up a lot of skill base and experiences, but I left on a journey to study other forms of agriculture, particularly animal and perennial based, tree based agricultures, which took me on journeys around the world. And that's a whole big story in itself. But it led me to, yeah, I guess a holistic approach to diversified mixed farming which is what european agriculture always was for thousands of years you could say uh, i ended up moving to 59 degrees north in sweden i never expected to live this far north in a cold expensive pretty harsh uh, regulatory environment but it has a lot of benefits too and i've come to really love the the climate here there's, there's, I think anyone anywhere in the world has easily can put together, you know, problems that they have with their particular climate or context. But that's kind of the way farmers work. There's always a problem with the weather or <laughs> the landscape in some way. Uh, but there's pros and cons to every landscape. So I set about to design a farm that would be fueled on perennial crops, pasture and tree crops. But those things don't pay returns quickly and so i've been i guess a not only a big proponent of mixed farming but my work's really centered on educating people coming into farming how to get started with low-cost means with enterprises that are modular scalable pay off their investment costs immediately and start making money and i think any of your listeners will be well aware that farms are bottomless pits that you can pour money into so we need to be pragmatic and a lot of us excited about these topics are coming with some degree of idealism you could say and you know usually with a deep pins interest and passion for 
whole systems and ecology. And that's often what fuels the sort of passion that can make these small farms work, you know, in terms of relationship marketing, etc. But I very quickly focused on two or three enterprises that were profitable immediately. In our case, it was market gardening and pastured poultry. We're a very small farm. It's 13 hectare farm. So larger animals are out of the question. And things like tree crops take a long time to pay back. So they're systems that we implemented very early in the farm as things are very slow growing up here this far north. We have a three-month cross-free growing season. And so we prioritized putting those systems in. But in order to pay for those, we needed enterprises that were very profitable and lucrative. And for small farms, that's things like poultry, uh, always going to be the things that can pay the bills and scale easily with the market base. So this farm's had a two-prong approach. We, you know, we set out with wanting to, to grow all our own food as well as make a living from our land. But we also wanted to document that process, do a lot of data collection and facilitate a whole new generation of farmers to get started on the land in a smart way too. So that's what we've been doing up here. I'm curious just to have a bit more of a clear uh, picture of the perennial systems you've put into place. Uh, what are kind of the main systems you've designed and implemented? There's a few different things going on. So half of the farm is actually forestry. And when I say forestry, I'm saying that in air quotes, because in Sweden, 90% of all the trees are monocultural spruce. And that's what most of the Swedish landscape is made up of. Tourists coming to Sweden often talk about the magical Swedish forest, but it's a bit of a travesty because these are what I would call vertical deserts. There's a diversity of one, <laughs> and it's a, a really damaging industry that's involved in major clear-cutting And the sort of big machinery that runs that industry is only profitable if it's, I think the figure is something like the harvesters have to be cutting trees down every 40 seconds to be making money. And so timber, the quality of timber has decreased even in my short lifetime. Timber is being cut year round, which is not the best for the timber quality. It's shorter life cycles and kiln dried faster, faster cycles all the time. And it causes major hydrological problems with the clear cutting on marginal ground where the forestry tends to be placed. So I'm sure most of your listeners are aware trees belong in certain places in the landscape. And that's typically on the tops of ridges where the soil is poor, shallow, dry, not suitable for pasture or tillage operations or in the sort of eroding valley basins where perennial roots are needed to protect the hydrological cycle. The trouble is, <clears throat> excuse me, the trouble is in Sweden, it's very young soils. It was underwater here 10,000 years ago. And so it's extremely poor and very variable soils. So when they cut clear cuts here, it creates major devastation in the landscapes and the water cycles. So half of the farm was monocultural spruce. And so I've been working, the most of the forestry work I've been doing is actually converting monocultural spruce back to broadleaf mixed species and running pastured or forest raised pigs as a way to cash flow that process with a broad 
diverse leaf tree forest being the corollary, the sort of the happy consequence of that process. I did a lot of economy, and I'll talk about the other systems we've put in more intentionally uh, shortly, but it's it's very fascinating from an economic standpoint. So large monocultural forestry only works at scale in the industry model. Uh, the forestry here, I I cut down the last portion of it because my land is tied with access rights with my neighbor. So my neighbor and I were in negotiation. We had to cut it at some point because he would have to come and cut his anyway. I was kind of inclined to keep the forest there and find a different way to make it pay to keep the forest there. But we had to cut it. But this is on a 70-year cycle, right? So those trees, they give a large cash sum, but it equates to about 140 euros per hectare per year because of the long cycle for harvesting. And that's really poor economics. For example, my pastured layers or pastured broilers, they both generate 150 times more profit than that per hectare per year. I mean, 150 times. Like when we're talking about farming, we're talking about creating energy efficiencies using tools that double our speed or quadruple our speed. But factors of 150 are just off the charts. So I played with different models with that. Right? And one would be, I built a tree house up in the forestry before, because if I rent out a tree house for three weekends a year, it's more valuable to keep that forest in place and more profitable too. But we've also been running pastured pigs under the forest. Now that's a very lucrative enterprise. It's 50 times more profitable than the forestry. And if you do that very carefully with close observation and, and timing, Pigs are the, the climatic trigger for our forest systems. So what we see in ecology is all ecosystems are governed by patchy intermittent disturbances and wild boar would be the European proxy. So we're using old heritage breed pigs to turn the soil, but in a very careful timed way. So they're constantly moving within half hectare paddocks, but they're in smaller portions of land within that and allowing that ground to recover. And what we see is the tree species that come back are of a higher diversity than you find anywhere in the landscape around us. And it's something I've been documenting on our YouTube channel over the years, because there's a, a beautiful comparative study where the neighbors had cut their forestry at the same time and have done nothing with it since. And it's a totally different species complex, much lower diversity, all the brushwood still lies on the ground six, seven years later, whereas ours has been incorporated and broken down. But we've also timed these interactions with cows and sheep from our pasture to bring in the gut flora and fauna from the pasture. So now we have high-value grazing with trees of large diversity, with species that you don't see in the landscape around us. We have something like 50 oaks per hectare. And there are no full-grown oaks except for two large ones outside my house and one outside my neighbor's house. But in a 20-kilometer radius of the farm, you don't see broadleaf mature trees except in garden plantings. And I think Swedish people don't really know what the natural forest assemblies look like because there aren't any, or in, or in very small pockets in nature reserves around the country. So this is really interesting to me because I see in the face of 
global weirding, climate weirding, whatever's happening in 60, 70, 80 years' time, I'm going to have a full stand of oak, ash, tilia, all these wonderful hardwoods that are, are worth something, whatever the world economy is doing. But in the meantime, I've 50x the income of that land producing nutrient-dense food with animals in their correct habitat at the same time. So that's a really, it's something I don't talk about so much because most people are interested in implementing agroforestry systems like silver pasture, silver arable systems. But there's a lot of work to do in many parts of the US, Canada, etc., with taking these monocultural plantations and, and extracting a bit more juice while restoring the ecology and habitat there too. Other systems we've put in are primarily silver pasture systems. And we're so far north, it's been my priority to stick to standard fruits and berries that we actually eat. So it's all centered around apple, pear, plum, cherry. There's hazel. And there's our potent berry fruits like black currants, white currants, red currants, gooseberries, aronias. These are like the superfoods of this part of the world. Up here at this latitude where you get such long sunlight in the summer, you get the development of a lot more riboflavins and nutrient density that those berries are literally superfoods. And so we've got about a little shy of two kilometers of of these perennial rows sitting on different spacings up above the pasture, dependent on the orientation of those fields. And there's about 30,000 euros of produce sitting up above the field, not taking up very much space, intelligently planned in that it's not in the way of all the field operations. And it's fairly low maintenance. And we've got other orchard plantings. We grow a lot of like riparian crops like American elder and Saskatoon, things that we make like nutrient-dense things for our own needs. As I said before, we're a farm that <clears throat> produces food for ourselves primarily first and then produces other things for sale. And so our tree crops fit into that category. We have about 10,000 meals served every year in our summer training. So we are selling our produce directly to our consumers in that way, you could say. So we have fresh berries every day of the year. And then we do sell surpluses. So we sell jams, we'll include them in vegetable baskets, etc. Uh, we've done that in different ways in the past, but for us, the scale is is not big enough that it's an important part of the economy compared to our primary enterprises. And so we've always had these ancillary enterprises like the pork, fruits, berries, wild mushrooms that we harvest. There's things that we'll do that make up a significant amount of revenue, but they're not significant compared to our primary enterprises you could say you laid out very clearly on the forestry you know side kind of the vision on the long term and as you started you were presenting you know these uh poultry or market gardening enterprises as as ways of getting a, a quick cash flow and getting uh, profit profit quite like quickly in and i'm wondering what does that mean for the long-term vision would it be that you always keep these enterprises because they're actually the ones that pay Uh, and just have a supplement of the tree crops? Or is there kind of a succession in your business as well where you kind of see, well, as we go later on, I can kind of lay off from these enterprises that are high return, but also a lot of work maybe, or high input, and kind of go on those perennials? Like, how do you see this kind of evolving 
throughout the time as these perennial systems mature? Well, I think you can look at that in a couple of ways. That's obviously going to be totally down to the context of, of whoever's planning that. I think there's a whole scope for successional planning within farms. For example, here, we didn't take on a lot of loan and we planned, we made a business plan to pay off all debt in the first five years, which we achieved. And there is some scope to then bring back in some idealism. Now, in a more immediate way for me, one of the ways I think about that was with the pasture boiler operation. I've been very clear about singing the praises of that enterprise, but also highlighting the flaws. The flaws being we're relying on industry genetics for these hybrid fast-growing birds. I've got nothing against hybrid fast-growing birds, but the holistic context of the company that owns the genetics is perhaps dubious. And we're relying on a lot of imported grains, and that's becoming increasingly expensive. I think that's going to rise in prices again next year when all of the fertilizer bills from this year start kicking in. And so that's a problem. And I planned that enterprise and made the investment to build a slaughter facility on the farm, knowing that I could take some time to steer my customer base towards more truly pasture-raised animals like geese or rabbits for example but that's a long educational process i think the way that we see society moves is that people will not change their habits dramatically until they're forced to there's only a couple of cases in history i can see where people in very adverse circumstances actually creatively and co-creatively chose to adapt their ways of living for mutual benefit it's more likely looking at history that we you know go back to our patterned patriarchal tendencies you could say so the reason i'm saying these things is that i planned that enterprise invested in this slaughtery because it would give me the ability to slowly pivot to these more idealistic enterprises at a time when we might be forced to due to changing climate feed costs etc where people become more pliable to change their habits but also where i wasn't in debt that i could afford to drop the revenue significantly and so you could apply that same thinking to the tree systems if i'm producing all of my family's food and I've paid off my debts, then I can afford to cut out enterprises and shift towards those tree crops. Now, in my case, I was never intending to fully cut out those enterprises. I eat a lot of meat and I enjoy working with animals and the benefits of animals in an ecosystem are profound in terms of habitat creation, soil regeneration. It's really animals that drive those fertility loops in our climates. So for me, it's never about completely leaving those enterprises. It will be more a case of I can afford to not use these hybrid meat birds and take a more robust heritage-based bird and, and still make the business work in my context by utilizing those tree crops, etc. I think it comes down to scale, right? You could easily design an agroforestry farm that over a certain number of years 
was planted at a density and designed primarily to take over the economy at some point. Of course, you can do that. But it's a very different starting point, and it requires a, a lot of intimate knowledge and visioning that I think someone coming new to this would not possess, probably. And using animals or some other enterprise to cash flow that, or even other perennial crops like strawberries, high-value cash crops, while the system sort of fills in and takes over. But the bottom line is that it's got to be done at the correct scale. I think a big part of my book, Regenerative Agriculture, was trying to introduce people coming into the farming world about critical mass and scale. It's like, yeah, you can make a living doing this or this or this, but you've got to be thinking at the right scale or no, you can't, you know. Yeah, um, that made me think like in addition to the scale, there's a real issue about skills. And you must realize that because you're training a lot of uh, new farmers uh, lacking experience and actually managing to design at the same time a profitable enterprise, even let's say just focusing on poultry and starting a business, which is already, you know, a big challenge in itself. And at the same time, having the capacity to plan uh, perennial systems that are going to be in the right place are not going to be a hindrance that you're going to be able to technically master. Um, that's that's quite a massive challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think like you've got to decide early on, am I going to be an orchardist? Am I going to be a, you know, am I a tree farm or am I an animal farm? And I think the, the model I set out here is partly influenced by the educational aspirations for this place. Like I knew this would be a hub for people coming to train. So it's not at a scale where, I, you know, I could certainly double down on those plantings. I was thinking about this last winter. If I did this whole thing again, I would probably double or triple the intensity of tree plantings. And I think if someone wants, you know, is aspiring to go towards tree crops being their long-term primary enterprise base, then you've got to design for that intensity to start with. And I think what you were saying, it speaks to, you know, it's it's a bit of our cultural condition. It's like everyone wants to be setting their own thing up, doing their own thing. There's a lot more scope for a lot more networks, expertise in Europe. I think the cultural nuances, the market differences make it very complex here. And there's a big need for the sharing of skills and knowledge, like regionally bringing other people into your farm plan. Like if you're new to farming and you're starting up a small business that you've never run a business before, that's, as I would call it, the steepest learning curve you could possibly have. I mean, it's very hard to make any business work. Just buying coffee beans, serving coffee, paying the rent is hard to make work, you know, but setting up an agricultural company is really tough. And I think a lot of the the passionate, wonderful people that can make this stuff work could use a lot more thorough education coming into the, the field. I think it's very easy in today's world with social media to get caught up on the wrong aspects. And I think that's something that's been a key focus here in, in with my educational work is hammering the background financial planning, time and motion analysis, decision making. It's like that's what makes farming work, not these wonderful pictures of 
trees and the sunset and chickens running around. It's like that stuff's relatively easy compared to making it work as a, a business. So I think people have to get very clear about the scale and the market base and also their skills and take a lot more training or, or buy expertise in. You know, you've got a lot of young people fueled with passion, not a lot of cash usually, trying very hard to do everything for themselves, often not putting any money into marketing and often trying to master five new skills at the same time. And there's no other industry that you would even attempt to do that in. You know, it's a lot of idealism still. And it's beautiful and it needs that passion injection. That's what makes business work. And I think a lot of people are invested in this as a lifestyle also. You know, they want to learn and they want to know for themselves. And that's that's great. But I think, as you point out rightly, like these are big skill sets and you've got to decide, like, is this a sideline thing that I can afford to run a bit loosely or is this my primary enterprise that I need to put my time and focus into? We also mentioned quite like a, the kind of extreme scenario where you're actually the trees you're including, you're actually planning as uh, tree crops and high value crops and high management uh, and high skill sets. But we could also imagine much lower, um, you know, work input systems, much simpler uh, turned around biomass or just ecosystem services. If we take the case of uh, your poultry enterprises, you know, you could just be saying I'm planting trees for uh, for chickens, you know, and then that, you know, kind of simplifies a lot um, your, your, your design and also reduces what you're expecting get, to get out of it. Yeah, you're not expecting a significant income out of it. But that can be like a simpler way of designing in trees and maybe a bit more realistic than thinking you're also going to be a full-time orchardist uh, and have productive, beautiful systems as well. Sure. Yeah, well, there's, you know, I've always said there's pretty much room for trees in every farm I've ever been to, except perhaps the Kremitahof, where they're actually cutting their trees out now. But most trees could benefit from trees for their ecosystem services or utilizing bits of land that aren't useful. You know, there's all these different patterns that we can apply trees to landscapes. And some of the most overlooked are things like windbreaks, hedgerows, riparians. These are all highly productive systems that don't require large amounts of management. And as you say, simple things like biomass plantings, like shelter belts within the fields, pretty much no maintenance and can be providing all of those same ecosystem services without any pressure to yield. And those systems don't need to be high cost at all. You know, there's in Europe now, you're buying whips for hedgerow planting for like 10 cents a tree. I mean, this is not super high cost. It's a one-time labor input that can be mechanized that it takes virtually no effort at a time of year when you're not doing much else anyway, typically. In, certainly in the cool temperate climates. And so there's there's no reason not to plant trees in. I think it's just important, as you point out, to really define in, in your unique time, place, and circumstance what sense of production you need and what time allocation you're going to put on it. And I think it's something I've always been really careful to try and explore with people certainly coming into my farm it's like hey look i would not set this farm up in this way if i was just trying to produce an income for my family 
like, I would just run boilers or I'd just run layers or I'd just run a market garden. It's like I'm specifically doing a lot of different things here because I, I was setting out to create a place that could provide educational perspectives that didn't exist. And it's what I wish I'd seen when I was learning. But I think that's a, a thing that I, certainly on my longer term trainings, I've managed to bash out of the heads of people is like, don't try and do too much at once. Like there's no benefit to that. You'll burn out and it'll cost too much and you won't look after any of it well. And it's like do one or two things well, but I would always plan all those other things in from the beginning. Like in terms of farm design, I would lay it all out to start with, but focus on things that bring money primarily. If you've got the capital, then put it in trees and water systems and things that are going to be creating a thriving habitat. And, you know, at the same time, you can't underestimate the, the benefits of integrating trees. I mean, Europe's got some of the longest running data collection of integrating trees into pasture and arable crops and it's undeniable what benefits are there so i think it's i like the idea of like trying to create some pattern language within that it's like okay here's like 10 patterns of applying trees to farm landscapes and now let's unpack them kind of like i did with regenerative agriculture try and make a like matrix of cost time input ecosystem benefit profitability da 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 to help people like navigate that. Maybe someone's already done that. I don't know. But I think it needs like a deep understanding of the subject and it needs really analytical thinking because they're such long-term systems. But I'm curious because, of course, you know, your farm um, isn't, as you mentioned, I mean, it's, it's not exactly like a normal farm. Like the choices you've made have been guided by providing an educational and a demonstration But if we had a thought experiment for a second and we're imagining, you know, um, you're advising a young farmer that's just about to start one enterprise. Do you think it's a good idea to integrate trees into that um, enterprise? So let's give an example. You know, you're going to start on market gardening. Um, does it make sense to do agroforestry market gardening and alley cropping? Because, again, that goes back to the idea of that it's not for nothing that um, conventional farming simplified landscapes Uh, not justifying it, but it is because it is easier to manage and you're removing a layer of complexity that just makes it easier to manage in some way. So where I'm trying to get at is balancing this, where I'm trying to get at is balancing this, uh, uh, you know, need for complexifying landscapes, but also that's hard, you know, and it's not for nothing that they were simplified and, and having the skills to, to, to follow that as a young farmer. Well, it's a balanced thing, right? Because that simplification has led to massive problems with habitat soil water cycles carbon cycles etc so that's obviously too simplistic to the point that it's debt-based mechanistic and it's an extractive uh, way of managing land that doesn't work we know that and i think it's a valid point you bring up it's like it doesn't have to be too complex so I've been advocating for many years, like my idealized market garden setup would include trees. And I've seen at least a dozen of my students actually implement that, but I don't know if they've taken all of the parts of that to heart. I didn't put trees into my market garden because I started it on the neighbor's land. And so I wasn't allowed to put trees in, but 
I think there's a lot of scope for partial shading. Certainly as you go further south in Europe, I would definitely grow vegetables in that way instead of using shade net. But I would do it here, but I would, I mean, we're working on a very small intensive scale there. So I would be looking at traditional modern, or not traditional, standard modern orchards. I'd be using super dwarfing trees, high density to get that production up because we're talking about highly fertile beds, high levels of management, daily visual inspections. That's where it would be suitable if it was at a scale, you know, when we're talking about a couple of thousand square meters of intensive market garden beds, there you can start to get quite a decent economy from intensive apples that you sell to the existing customer base or juice or whatever it is. So I think it's got to be at the right intensity, like planting standard trees randomly in the middle of beds is not going to work. But I think it doesn't have to look any particular way. I think there's a lot more scope for perennial crops in market garden settings, like things, simple things like strawberries, asparagus, that a lot of market gardeners are already doing. And, and maybe the simplest way to approach that is just thinking of hedgerows. You know, you need windbreak around your market garden anyway. So bringing a bit of biological diversity is profoundly beneficial to crop protection. You know, we've been pretty blessed up here with very low instances of crop problems in the market garden. I would say primarily from the no dig approach that we have, which I think is optimizing soil care. But the sheer diversity means that we've got a massive population of small birds and insect life that you can see that nature's complexity is creating resilience. You know, in, in, in ecological terms, like diversity is resilient. When I first moved to Sweden about 10 years ago now, I came to this farm and there were no small songbirds. And it's loud here now in the spring. It's like the neighbors and elderly man has been every year. He says there's more and more birds every year. And it's like, yeah, I'm not surprised. Like we're making this diverse island that's worth landing on, essentially. So, but I think, yeah, it's people have to have a uh, realistic appraisal of the skill sets, the market demands. But there's no reason not to bring that diversity in, but you can simplify it by putting in hedgerows or just berry production, you know, raspberry production, something simple. There's there's scope for all those things without making it overly complex. And I think a lot of that is a spill off from the market, uh, sorry, from the forest garden world, you know, where people getting excited about 400 varieties of things they've never seen before, let alone know how to harvest or eat. And that's not useful. I've always sort of taken the approach of why don't we try and integrate the things we actually eat in a simple, robust, linear way that's easy to harvest and practical to maintain or whatever. But like, for example, including, um, you know, apple trees in your market garden, you're confident that you could still keep uh, a high level of efficiency in the way you move around and, and harvest and also not like make your life more complicated with root competition, for example, or anything else. Like that's something you would happily do. Yeah, I think so. Like I would take in my climate up here, I would take like, say a block of 10 standardized market garden beds, which 
for the sake of it, let's say they're going to be 75 centimeters wide with a 30 centimeter path. That's what most market gardeners are going to be going for. Then I would take blocks of five or 10 beds and put in tree systems happily in between those. I mean, high intensity dwarfing trees are going to benefit a lot from the fertile place they find themselves in, but they're not exactly strong rooted plants. So they're not trying to grow out across the market garden. I think the choice of of plant is pretty important. I mean, those dwarfing trees, you've got to work quite hard to keep them alive typically because they're not invested in rooting. So I think appropriate plant choice is really important. But yeah, in the in a sensible layout where you have adequate pathways at the end of blocks, then it's posing no problem to to daily operations at all. Same with silver pasture, silver arable crops. If you design in proper headlands and appropriate spacing, they're not influencing field operations at all. Hmm. Great. Yeah, because that was going to be like my other thought experiment was, you know, applying this to someone taking one of your enterprises being, you know, poultry, either laying hens or, um, what do you call it, broilers. Um, it's fairly easy because you have this movement in the landscape to actually just put in alley cropping uh, systems. And then either, as we said, if you're highly ambitious, go for like high value crops that are going to need a bit more expertise or otherwise, you know, go for a more extensive approach. Uh. Yeah, I think if you've got, you know, like on the extensive end, you're going to have standard trees that don't require so much maintenance and other than the sort of formative years and your basic pruning regimes or like you know however you decide you're going to manage those down to more intensive smaller scale using the same stock as modern orchards do i think like you know the overwhelming research is that tree rows in pasture or arable crops between say 8 and 26 meters is where you find those optimal interactions with pasture or arable crop and on small farms if you want to make that economic you're going to have to start going down to 8 meter center rows with intensive animals in between to run the numbers and see what sort of production you can eke out of that i mean if i take the silver pasture systems that i've put in here there's no pressure on those economically that it's they have been they're always uh, poor trees they're always like the lowest in priority when you've got animals in the system high value produce that you've also got an animal welfare issue you know trees have to take the back seat as it were so i definitely haven't uh, <laughs> taken care of my systems in the way that you could but I haven't had the pressure to do that either. So that's that works for me. But if I was trying to optimize the leverage to its... I think in the early years of this farm, I was excited to keep pushing and see how, how far can we push this system? How much could we produce off this little landscape? But then you start running into like a scaling issue with employees. You know, this farm is designed around like four full-time working in the seven-month production season. But if you start to add that tree enterprise as a functional unit economically, then you need a whole other employee for that. So that's it's got a scale in those relative terms. 
So I've always designed things around multiples of three meters because that's the width of a boiler pen, which is a strong enterprise for me. And so I would think in those terms, but, you know, go down to even six meters. So you're, you're basically now stretching out a modern intensive orchard just with wider rows for poultry production in between. And that can work very well. I've seen that being used in, you know, vineyards and existing orchards, but it would probably function even better if it was designed that way from the beginning, because you would be able to scale the poultry who are going to be making most of the income. And, you know, we touched upon it, but I think it's important to go back to this idea of scale because uh, so much of, 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 of the economic viability is going to depend on scale. And the challenge, of course, for small scale farms is how do you make, um, you know, tree crops or even, you know, if it's not a crop, even if it's harvesting wood or biomass, how do you make that economically viable when you can't benefit from economies of scale that uh, bigger players are going to have? Well, that's, I mean, there's so many layers to those things i mean you can rent machinery right so i've seen farms that power their entire heating and hot water systems for the entire farm off biomass coppice rows that are harvested alternately once a year put through a chipper and run through like scandinavian wood chip boilers it's very common here in sweden to have a wood chip boiler that powers central heating and people heat their huge warehouses to you know keep machines warm over the cold winter here so you don't need to go out and buy wood chippers you can rent a wood chipper for a weekend and chip enough fuel for the entire farm for the winter so you don't need to go and buy stuff necessarily i think that small farms viability relies on relationship marketing where you can outcompete the industry on three points, which is freshness, localness, quality, hopefully. So, well, then you've got to say, I'm definitely fresher and I'm definitely more local, but am I better quality? So then you've got to know what you know and know what you don't know because anyone can set up a market garden and grow vegetables, but it's like, do you know the quality the chefs need? You know, do you know how uniform they need these things? It's there's different levels to all of these things. So we can command that high price because we're selling direct to consumer. That's like the obvious part of that. But you still got to produce quality. So you need to know like what you're working with. That's the same for any enterprise and any business. But you can command that high price. Now, most people I've seen using tree crops are complementing other products. And I think, you know, certainly if it's, it's usually, I would guess, because people are not working at a scale where they're now primarily a tree crop producer, which is very hard to do on a small to medium scale because of the globalized market. So you could just set out with using it as an ancillary crop is probably more sensible because you need to cash flow everything. And so I think I can't imagine anyone setting out a new tree planting based farm unless it was intensive modern approach because it's not going to work economically. But if we are selling on top of other products, then you can command that high price because there's some artisanal quality or some 
some value created by you know bringing the kids onto the farm like picking your own these kind of things it's like you're not just selling produce you're selling a service at the same time you know i was thinking about you know uh, also economics and funding those trees at, at in the beginning because as we've often mentioned you know in the first few years you've got a lot on your plate and also you're already having to cash flow your enterprise that's generating uh, your income um, and yeah, what kind of possibilities or funding models have you seen that work well for young farmers to start out and already being able to invest in those tree plantations right from the start? Well, there's a whole range of, you know, like one thing is to generate the nursery stock yourself, like for people that don't have many funds, you know, grafting and creating seeding beds. It's a way to produce for very little cost. and all the way through to to funding like I've been working with Ecosia to help fund new farmers that want to plant trees specifically. I think there's they have something like three million euros a year to give out to new farms. And that whole program came about because the Ecosia folks came to one of our trainings and they were talking one evening about Ecosia and presenting how their model works. And it struck me that, you know, they were focused on planting trees in developing countries where they get more trees planted per dollar. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Like, we just run through this training and it's, there are places for trees in landscapes, you know. Is it good planting trees in prime agricultural land on the other side of the world? Is that useful? It's like, is that, you know, there's a danger for people coming into that space who have huge capital um, resources to invest but don't have technical or ecosystem knowledge to to know how to use that in the most beneficial way so i sort of convinced them to run a pilot to fund new startups mixed farms or any type of farm that specifically had to be planting trees as part of their model to fit the ecosia bill and so that fund has developed over time. It's, you know, it's there for people in Europe at this time. But they have a, a huge amount of capital to, they have to invest in as a social enterprise. So, but it's a low cost loan. It's a low risk loan, let's say. It's still a loan. So it's, you know, you you would still need to be very diligent with your planning if you're interested in putting out tree crops. But you couldn't find a better source of of uh, capital in that way other than like crowdsourcing. And, you know, I know a lot of farms have, have run successful campaigns on social media to get people to invest up front for tree planting and things like that. But that's obviously going to require, you know, some presence and ability to put your message out to an audience. At our government grants, I'm not up to date on, you know, sort of EU fundings for tree planting at the moment. So I don't know the status of that. To wrap up this interview, um, it's a bit going back to design, but I think we've touched upon it a few times. So I'm really curious to see your thoughts. Like, you know, you could see like you've mentioned the space for trees in the landscape, which can be on like marginal areas, riparian zones on top of hills. Do you really see like do we have to integrate trees within plots or is that making our lives a bit too complex? Because I'll just give you an example to make it at the moment. I'm, you know, I'm a livestock farmer now and I'm thinking of where should I bring my trees? And actually like, 
I don't really know because I'm I'm kind of learning my landscape. I'm learning also my my skill. Um, I'm cutting hay, so I don't want to put trees in the middle of everywhere because I'm moving around with machinery. I don't want to uh, make it too complicated because as soon as you have a tree, you have like some uh, shadows coming in and that means hay is going to dry at a different speed. Like you're, you're bringing in complexity that can be a bit too much. So at the moment, I'm just thinking, okay, I'll just focus on areas where like hedges already and little little areas and I'm not going too ambitious on integrating it within and yeah I'm just thinking of your of your thoughts because you could also argue that okay well you know let's already put trees in all the areas where they can be beneficial right next to without necessarily them necessarily bringing them into the field yeah of course it no it doesn't have to look any particular way and I think people get stuck on trends Certainly within this field, there's a lot of trends that fly around year to year and get picked up and people need to develop rigorous analytical thought. You know, that's something to say, but it doesn't have to look anyway. If it doesn't fit the context, then why would you do that? You know, and what works for me here might not work 100 kilometers south or whatever, you know. And on the flip side, I think we also need to put back this like you know that there's a responsibility to land to managing landscapes that we need to tap back into a couple of hundred year perspective and that's something that's very hard to do anyway but it's becoming yeah we live in a throwaway world where people especially younger generations don't know what longevity means you know we buy furniture that is made to last a few years or digital devices that break down very fast it's you know it's if you're born in the last 25 years and you've probably never likely been exposed to like how things used to be and we're losing that in society and that's a big problem because you know i'm planting a tree that lives a thousand years so of course it's got to be in the right place in the landscape but the ecosystem services that i've witnessed through the management here is unbelievable and undeniable and that's both in our pastures but also the surrounding like for me i look at the trees as a way to break up the landscape into smaller and smaller portions of land to maximize the amount of photons that I'm capturing in our short growing season. People here would typically plant things further apart because there's less light, but that's the complete opposite way around for me. It's like if light is a limiting factor, then catch every bit of it you can. And I can't separate these things out. It's like trees to me are integral part of pasture systems you know our oldest forms of grazing systems around europe were trees over pasture more like woodland grazing and those benefits are powerful and palpable when you see an ecosystem start humming with life it's it's something else it's there's a level of resilience going on that i can't put it down to trees but trees are integral to it like we don't suffer the typical wet spots that people have in their pastures here. We have zero mosses and sedges here. 
We don't suffer drought. We went through the 2018 drought with zero loss of production when people were selling off half their herds in June. And now that's from the soil building we've done through intensive animal management with holistic plant grazing, using key lime plough, etc. But it's also partly to do with effective windbreaking and intensive tree plantings with their nutrient cycling and water cycling, etc. It's like it's all part of the same piece. So for me, in the context I've put them into the landscape here, I can't separate those. They're part of an integral whole. And this ecosystem started humming a couple of years ago where there is three pairs of nesting raptors on the farm. This is a 13-hectare farm, and there's three apex predators moved into that little space because it's a haven of activity. And there's a balance going on in the ecosystem that's it's something to behold. And that's the sort of thing that I wanted to create, and that's the sort of ecosystem I want to hand down as a land steward. So I think we're teetering on a on a double-edged sword there because the desire to simplify and mechanize, make it more efficient, leads one direction, and it's not regenerative. You know, is it even sustainable? I don't know. But don't have to stick trees in your pasture. You don't have to you don't have to do anything. You need to start from the basis of planning where you want to end up. And and planning where you want to end up, of course it needs to work economically primarily. And it's gotta work for the benefit of your customers in terms of nutrient density. And I think that is a whole field that's gonna become forefront in terms of customer choices, etc. in the coming years. But it's got to work from ecosystem process perspectives too. You know, there's a lot of broken farmland with broken nutrient cycles and water cycles, and trees are an integral part of fixing that. We know flooding is going to increase. We know droughts are going to increase in most parts of Europe and elsewhere. And trees are a very important part of mitigating that. So I think like rather than simplifying landscapes by taking these things out is, hey, simplify your ideas and put easy-to-manage systems in the right place. You know, there's no reason not to put certain types of trees into any field cropping situation without affecting uh, yields of other crops. In fact, it's going to benefit other crops. So, And there's a lot of research to, to back that up. So. Of course, it's got to be designed for your specific context. And it's good. Like you obviously know and have have exposed yourself to enough to be able to clarify what your specific context is with the operations you've got in mind. But that's what everyone's got to do. You know, there's no magic bullet. There's no... I was very cautious writing my book to to put sort of formulaic recipes to things because they don't exist. But I did it very carefully in a way that I also know people need some kind of standardization to work with because that's how our brains are conditioned to thinking. But of course, there's no standardized solutions in farming. It's, it, it doesn't work like that. But I would always still advocate for tree systems. But I think the key insight here is like to really plan down to detail what the sort of time 
and skill levels involved are and what the economic inputs and outputs are going to be. And it's, you know, there's a lot to be said for the non-edible crops like biomass and timber. Like we've seen the price increases of these materials massively this year. That's not going to decrease. We've got major problems here up in Scandinavia, which is a major producer of building lumber, where we've got like the, the bark beetles and we've started having forest fires where we didn't even have enough Swedish knowledge of how to fight forest fires so they flew canadians in to fight the forest fires these problems are just going to be exacerbated in years to come so timber prices are going to continue to increase so you know a lot of the plantings on my farm i've got avenue plantings along the roads that could not really be used for anything else but they're usually places that exist on every farm all over the world these are, they're not economic from my perspective, but they're definitely going to be economic from my kids' or grandkids' perspective because there's going to be a couple of hundred oak, straight pruned oak logs that can build a house that will last another 500 years, you know. So same goes with biomass for heating, etc. You know, heating bills, people are, you know, Germany might not have any gas this winter. So what are you going to do then? You know, that energy cost is like, who knows where those prices are going, but it's not, it doesn't look good. And if you can be producing on farm in a closed cycle, your energy needs like that. I mean, that's vastly economic. It's just hard to, to put those things into numbers. I think one thing I've noticed working with people coming into farming is people are very bad at valuing their own time. and they're often not accustomed to valuing things outside of the financial realm. Like natural capital is like, how do you put a price on that? It's difficult, but I'm very happy swapping financial capital for natural capital. You know, we're building reserves that see us through problems that give us resilience. Like when I saw the drought, that, that cemented something in my brain that's unshakable. You know, I can remember I put up videos on YouTube, aerial footage of all the farms around us, yellow. The grasses have stunted out at knee height. And we're, we've got grasses, same species up to my face in full photosynthesis. Soil moisture is still present because there's a deep, thick layer of trampled grasses in between these tight tree rows. Wind isn't taking moisture away. Sunlight's not hitting the ground. There's still soil activity. At a time when I walk 20 meters through my windbreak to the neighbor's field and it's cracked clay with very sparse grasses, no life at all. So it's like, well, what value do you put on that? It's like in that drought year that's going to come more and more regularly, I can produce at full production across the farm. So times that by 10 years and you've got millions of euros, you know, it's 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 got to be put into, you know, I've always been sharing the work of Ethan Rowland, Gregory Landau, The Eight Forms of Capital. I think that's a great piece for people to really reflect on in their little short book, Regenerative Enterprises. We need to have a way of relating to these different forms of capital because it's, it's not just about straight numbers. Of course, those economic numbers are vital, but there's much better enterprises to cash flow farms than trees. That's just a period, you know, there's no debate about that. So 
I think it it circles all the way back to integration and to to run a farm landscape is a diversified landscape, you know. And it doesn't mean everyone has to do a bit of everything, but we can be doing more than one thing on a field. There's no progression in that kind of model. Just to conclude, could you tell us where our listeners can find uh, your resources, your, your books, uh, anything you produce and get out there? Yeah, easiest way is uh, one of my websites, richardperkins.co. And from there, you can find links to my books, Regenerative Agriculture, which is a whole systems manual of how we set up and run this farm, the economies, and uh, putting together a sort of comparative analysis of all these different farm enterprises to give people a strategic way to plan and design their enterprise and scale it to make it work for their needs. And this Ridgedale Farm Builds is a, it's kind of like an IKEA manual for people that want to know how to build an eggmobile or a broiler pen. It's cut lists and dimensions so that people can just take that and run with that. And we have various different things, YouTube, etc., that people can find from there as well. Cool. Great. Thank you so much, Rich. Yeah, no worries. Nice to spend time with you.